Many of you will know the name Phyllis Wheatley. Historians regard Phyllis Wheatley as the mother of African-American literature. Her published poems were the first literary works published in the Americas by an African-American. Phyllis Wheatley was born in West Africa sometime around the year 1753. She was sold into slavery around the age of seven or eight and wound up in Massachusetts where she was purchased by a John and Susan Wheatley, hence her last name. The Wheatleys are the ones who taught Phyllis Wheatley how to read and write. And what she did with that was extraordinary. But before she could publish her poems, Miss Wheatley had to prove that she, and by extension, African peoples, were capable of literature, were capable of intellectual production. Despite the racially motivated skepticism of some in New England, Phyllis did publish these poems, and these poems received notable praise on both sides of the Atlantic. She wrote poems in honor of men like George Whitfield, because Wheatley herself was an orthodox, committed, evangelical Christian who loved the gospel. She wrote poems that were paying homage to George Washington, who himself praised her for the remarkable character of her work. And even the father of African-American literature, Jupiter Hammond, praised Phyllis Wheatley for the, the wonder and the power of her work. Mr. Wheatley set Phyllis Wheatley free at his death. She soon married, and we later give birth to two children who died as infants. In 1784, her husband fell into debt and was himself imprisoned, which left Phyllis Wheatley a single mom, poor, and soon in ill health. Her remaining son, infant son, died not long after she died. Here this woman, famed for her writing, died in obscurity, poor, sick, her child orphaned, sharing her, her, her very fate. Despite her fame as an author, she was not saved from those marks of injustice. Her son was not saved from that. And Phyllis Wheatley deserves all the historical celebration she earned as a writer. And yet her life also reveals how wide the gap was, and in some cases continues to be, between claims to liberty and justice for all, and the experience of African Americans. That's why the first theological questions that African Americans asked historically were questions about justice and mercy. Can God really be just in the face of our suffering? Even Wheatley, who rarely talked about herself in her poetry, reflected poetically and theologically on this in the poem entitled On Being Brought from Africa to America. It's a short poem. Here's how it goes. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God and there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. 
Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. It's a short poem. See how much it covers. This struggle with the mercy and the goodness of God in light of the slave trade. The fight to hold on to this belief that God is good, just as we heard in our sister Jadine's testimony. This, this coming to be aware of God and a Savior that was accessible to her and her people as well, despite their circumstance, and celebrating that there's a Savior too. But then this pushback against the stereotype that black people, as she put it, were died with a diabolical die. And this pushback even against the Christian church. But she has to say to Christians, remember, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. That's been the posture of African Americans, many African Americans for, for centuries now. We've worked hard to understand justice and mercy and God's goodness in the face of injustice and prejudice and brokenness. And like Wheatley's poem suggests, those questions have been most pointed and painful when the source of injustice and prejudice has not been the world, but also the church. That's why Wheatley insists that we remember what God has also for the Negroes, to use the language of the day. Our text this morning finds Israel in a similar situation as Phyllis Wheatley. Only it's not Israel asking the questions about God's justice. It's God questioning Israel about their injustice. In the text, God's people were not the agents of righteousness, but of oppression. But God insists on justice from them. We best study Zechariah 7 and 8 as one unit. These two chapters uh, include a pattern that really hold them together as one. If you're a Bible geek and you like to get into structure and all this stuff, this is just for you right here, okay? There's, there's a pattern here. You might imagine it like climbing a mountain, going up a, a rough side of the mountain, working, uh, pushing against the mountain and gravity itself and until you get to the top and then you sort of take the view of the surrounding area from the mountaintop. You, you breathe that in for a moment and then having reached the top of the mountain and, and having breathed that in, you, you go down the other side with a, with a quicker step and a fresher understanding of what the mountain is like and what God is doing. That's what we have here. So on the upside, on one side of the mountain, Zechariah chapter 7 verses 1 to 3. The people come and they ask for the Lord's favor. But in verses 4 to 7, the Lord rebukes them for their false worship. And in verses 8 to 14, the Lord rebukes them for their injustice. That's the rough side of the mountain going up, if you will. Then we come to the top of the mountain, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And at the top of the mountain, the people get a view of God despite their failings in chapter 7. And at that view of the God at the top of the mountain, they're going to see two things. That the Lord loves them and has returned to them. And, if, and in his love and his return, number two, the Lord will restore them to true worship and prosperity. 
And with that view of God at the, at the top of this mountain, they then come down on the other side, which is parallel to chapter 7, and you'll see something. The Lord calls them to justice, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. And the Lord renews their fasting and their worship, verses 18 to 20. And now, instead of the nation, that one city from Bethel coming to the Lord to ask, the Lord will actually bring all nations to himself to seek his favor and his blessing. And so you see that, that sort of parallel structure that's happening in the chapter. The Lord rebukes, chapter 7. The Lord returns, first half of chapter 8. And the Lord renews, verses 16 to 23. Let me give it to you this way in terms of an outline. Point number one, if you're taking notes. Self-centered worship brings judgment, not blessing. Self-centered worship brings judgment, not blessing. Number two, at the peak now, we're at the top of the mountain. Number two, but self-centered worship, even that, does not stop God's plans for his people. It does not stop God's plans for his people. And now having seen what God is like, number three, coming down the other side of the mountain, God-centered worship leads to justice, joy, and revival. Justice, joy, and and revival. May the Lord help us as we read these two chapters together. Zechariah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me. I'm sorry. That's like chapter 6, verse 9. I need my glasses on. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, it's like two years later, the word, the, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord uh, of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fast and mourn in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with the whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. 
Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beasts. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people, of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Lord bless the reading of his word. First thing we want to observe from the sermon this morning, y'all pray for me because I, I feel like I'm, I'm pulling on the leash and I, I need to make some things clear. So y'all pray that the sermon is clearer than the preacher makes it, all right? First thing, self-centered worship brings judgment, not blessing. That's what we get in verse one. It's the fourth year of King Darius, 
If we were looking back in chapter 1, verse 1, you'll notice that the first prophecy came to Zechariah in the second year of King Darius. So it's a little bit over two years into uh, Zechariah's ministry. They're two years further into rebuilding the temple and trying to rebuild their society after having been conquered and sent out in exile in Babylon and Persia uh, and among the nations around them. And so Zechariah gets this word. This would have been about 518 B.C. in December, right about now. Zechariah gets this word from the Lord that begins, notice verse 2, with the people of Bethel seeking after the Lord, seeking his favor. Bethel is a city about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra tells us that there were about 230 persons who came back from exile who were associated with Bethel. Now, this is interesting because Bethel was a part of the northern kingdom. And when the kingdom was divided, Bethel and the northern kingdom often went after the Samaritans and often went after false worship. So we don't quite know from the text if these are people who are sort of holdovers from the northern kingdom who worship God falsely or if this is a part of that remnant that has come back and is seeking the Lord. I tend to think it's the remnant, but we don't know. In either case, notice, they seek of the Lord. They entreat the favor of the Lord. Specifically in verse 3, they ask the priests and the prophets of the Lord if they should continue to fast and mourn in the fifth month of every year. They say we've done this for many years. A couple verses later, God himself says that they've been doing it for 70 years. For 70 years, in this particular month, they have been weeping, one presumes because of the exile, and they have been fasting, seeking God's favor. And when they're back in the land, they come to ask if they should continue to do that and to ask God's blessing. Now, seeking the favor of the Lord seems like a good thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, we think of passages in the Old Testament where people did not seek the favor of the Lord before they took some action, and it went disastrous. From Israel going to battle against Ai and having that small little people overthrow them and embarrass them, to kings taking the prerogative to do certain things without inquiring of the Lord, and it ended up disastrous. So this seems like a good and right to do. The people come to ask of the Lord. But now notice in verses 4 to 6, the Lord speaks through Zechariah, and he says in verses 4 to 6, say, notice, to all the people of the land, not just the, Beth, the folks from Bethel, and the priests, not just the common people, but the entire nation as a nation, the Lord speaks. And he says this, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, breaking the fast, celebrating, feasting, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? This is remarkable. God considered the focus of their worship. And he says they were not focused on him. They, they did not fast and feast for God. Instead, verse 6 says, they did these things for themselves. For 70 years, they worshiped and, and, and had been self-centered instead of God-centered. Now, this must have been alarming for Israel. It, it alarms me. I don't know about you. Because what this means is that it's possible to worship God a long time and not be doing it right. And it's possible to be seeking after God and asking his favor, not because you want God to be great, but because you want something for yourself. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, how does this work? How does this work among God's people? 
Well, it's possible to worship God for our own reputations, isn't it? How many believers in God want to be known for how godly or mature they are? That ain't about God. That's about us if we think that way. Or, or it's possible to worship God for our own sense of duty. How many folks go to church to say, I went to church <laughs> to be able to say, I did my duty rather than to say, I met my God? Or, or, or how many, how many, it's possible to worship God for our own self-esteem. You remember the Pharisee in the Gospels who's in the temple next to a sinner who says to God, thank God I'm not like this sinner. Who is that about? That's not about God, that's about that Pharisee, isn't it? No, it's possible to worship God for our own comfort that comes from the routine of it. How many times have we said, when I have my worship, my quiet times in the morning, my day goes better? I have, and it's true, and it's true. But was the purpose of our quiet time really for our day to go better or for us to draw near to God? This is subtle, but it's real. Now, we can worship God and, and go through the right religious activities and ask the right things at some level up here, but God who knows the heart goes, that ain't for me. That's for you. And we put ourselves ever so subtly at the center of our worship. This is why the Lord quotes from Isaiah 29, 13 in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 11, where God says to the people through Isaiah, am I pleased with these sacrifices? Do I really want the blood of bulls and goats? Oh, beloved, he, he wants our hearts lifted up to him and centered on him. So the question for us this morning is, who do we worship for? Why do we gather ARC? Is it for us or our neighbors? Is it for the God who saved us? And notice now, this was not the first time Israel had this problem. Verse 7, God starts to give a history lesson. He says in verse 7, Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed? And I read that I can't help but hear my mama. Didn't I tell you? Hadn't I told you one time before? And he says, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the notice, the former prophets, like Isaiah, the older prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland inhabited? In other words, God asked him, isn't this what I told your forefathers through the older prophets when everything was going well with you? When you were flowing and, and you, you just had, you were stacking paper, you just had it going on and, and, and the land was inhabited and prosperous and things were going well, even then I spoke to you about whether or not your heart was really on me. And now in the exile, when the country's been busted and, and it's rubble and they're having to rebuild, God says, I'm still dealing with the same heart. You worship me for you or you worship me for me. See, drifting can happen in times of plenty and in times of hardship. And so we have to keep a constant watch on our hearts, beloved, all of us. Verses 8 and 12 tell us what the real problem was with their forefathers, why, why God considered their worship selfish. In summary, God commanded them to be just and merciful, but Israel refused. Notice there. 
God desires people to render true judgments. That means have a fair and impartial, impartial court of law. We know that because when he mentions it before, he, he says sort of judgments in the city gate here. He's talking about kind of jurisprudence. He, he wants them to show kindness and mercy to one another. That, that means to be neighborly and to take care of each other, to recognize that they are a covenant community bound together by the affections and bound together by their common commitment to God. He wants them not to oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. This means they were to look out for and protect the vulnerable. Who, who, who were the vulnerable? Well, he names them, doesn't he? Women whose husbands had died and had no other family to provide for them. Children who had no father, the fatherless. Hold it tight. Okay, he's going to hold you fast. You hold your ball tight. All right? All right. The foreigners or immigrants who lived in the land for a season. Those are the sojourners. He's concerned here about immigration policy. People who could not meet their true and basic needs for a living. The poor. He wants them to flourish. Israel was not to oppress or hold these people down, but by implication to lift them up and to, and to help them. And notice he says, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. See, this is heart religion, isn't it? That means they were to love others and not to seek the hurt of others. No plotting and scheming about how they can advance at the expense of others. And we see how ancient Israel responded in verses 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. But beloved, this picture in verses 11 and 12 is not a picture of weakness, but wickedness. In other words, it's not as if they simply forgot or that they misunderstood or they had some bad situation hinder them from obeying God. It's not as if someone, God asked them to do something that they were unable to do. No, this is a picture of active rebellion. Notice the active words. They refused. It was an intentional act of the will. They were stubborn. It, it, was, a, it was a bad attitude of heart. They stopped their ears like little children. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And notice, it made their hearts diamond hard. One of the hardest substances on earth. And beloved, consider what they were neglecting in this. You see it at the end of verse 12? The law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. They rebuffed divinely inspired revelation. God was speaking to them through the prophets. The Spirit was at work among them in this call to, to be just and to show mercy. The, the, the Lord himself was giving them an indescribable gift. Here in the end of verse 12, for all of you, you theologues, we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture. This is a text that tells us that the very words of God are breathed out by God in the power of his spirit through prophets. And they were receiving that. God was actively speaking to them. And they refused and hardened their hearts and would not 
listen. Now you see the consequences in verses 13 to, to 14. Three of them. They wouldn't listen to God, so God would not listen to them. He refused to consider their prayers. And then God, like a whirlwind, scattered them through the nations in exile and judgment. And in the very pleasant land that he had promised, became desolate and uninhabited. And everything they suffered, beloved, they suffered because they disobeyed God's word. So we might put it this way. God's people cannot expect God's blessing until they obey God's word on justice and mercy. And we might apply it in three quick ways. One, Bible intake. God is speaking to us today through this book. His spirit is alive, making the word alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we need to get in the book and stay in the, in the book until the book gets in us and stays in us. Israel is not some category, some different category of people. We suffer the same infirmities. And so God is calling us to listen to him and his word. But number two, there's a history lesson here. And the history lesson is this. We must learn from history. Those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, the cliche goes. But that cliche is true. And this is as much as what God is saying to them in verse 7. I told your fathers, they didn't listen, and now here you are with the same problem. You didn't learn by wisdom from those who went before you. Now you're going to learn by experience, which is far more costly. We benefit spiritually when we consider the spiritual lives of those who've gone before us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11, those things that were written before are written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So a Christian view of history and a Christian view of the Scripture, a biblical history, is that it belongs to us as Christians and we are meant to profit from it and to learn from it by considering the examples of those who've gone before us. So let us read good church history. Let us read Christian biography. Let us hear the testimonies of the saints who have gone before us. Let us consider that great cloud of witnesses who have left us in Ebenezer. And let us read Israel as a message to us. I said three applications. That's two. That's enough for right now. But beloved, God is speaking to his church in this generation, this very word. That what does he require of us but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before him? What does he require of us? Proverbs tells us to speak for the vulnerable and the voiceless. What does he say here in this text? Do not oppress. Rather, be just and be merciful. And for all these things, their failures in worship, and in ethics, Israel suffers God's judgment. But that's not the end, beloved. Our second point considers chapter 8, verses 1 and 15. Self-centered worship, as bad as it is, it does not stop or thwart or end or frustrate God's plans for his people. Uh, we're on the top of the mountain in verses uh, 1 to 15. We're up and we're surveying the, the sort of view. We're looking out on the land and we're, we're taking into view some things that we couldn't see from down at the bottom of the mountain. 
Notice here. The first thing we see is God's love for his people. That's in verses 1 to 8. You get enough, you get up above the fray enough, whatever it is, and you begin to see more clearly the character of God, that God loves his people. And we might ask ourselves, well, how, how do we know that? How do we know God loves Israel? How do we know God loves the church? Particularly after he's just said he has sent Israel into judgment, and, and it's a terrible judgment to be exiled and enslaved and brutalized by another nation. How, how do we know, how do we square that with God's law? Well, first, God tells us. He tells us that he is a jealous God, that he's jealous for Israel. Look there in verse 2. The Lord speaks again, and he says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Again, this jealousy is not human jealousy. This is not kind of envy. This is not that green-eyed monster, as we sometimes call it, who, who kind of selfishly wants things that, that doesn't belong to it. This is not God saying, you know, you're going to love me or you ain't going to love nobody else. Somebody say that to you, you need to get away from that person quick and far. That ain't love. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. And, and we, we kind of chuckling, but on the real, some of you may be in relationships where you didn't heard that. And you need to get out of that. You need to get help to get out of that, all right? But this is not that. When God talks about his jealousy, think it, these are really, when you look at this verse and we, and we look down a little bit later around verses 7 and 8, these are marriage vows. So when we come to the altar and we celebrate marriage as, as we will do, Lord willing, on January the 8th and we, we see Brother uh, Rick and Sister Sean married, that's going to be a part in the vow where I ask them, do you promise to keep only unto her or to him as long as you shall live? That's jealousy. It's the loving, self-giving, intimate commitment that keeps the other in that love in that commitment, in protection. And that's what God is saying here. He says, I'm jealous with a great jealousy. I, I'm jealous with great wrath. In other words, I look at my people. I look at how others have abused them. I look at their suffering, even because of my judgment. And I, need, I now wish to prove that they are my people, that I do love them. And the evidence of that is that he says in verse 3, he's returning to them. You see there, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In other words, she's going to take my name. When I, when I come back to Jerusalem and we take these vows, she's not going to be walking around with some hyphenated name. She's not, she not keeping her maiden name. You know, she's she going to be known as holy unto the Lord, right? And, and she's going to be known as the faithful city. Uh, she's going to be known as the place where I live. She's going to be known by my name. And, and we're going to walk together in this, in this love and this unity. See that imagery again of salvation and marriage in verses 7 and 8. God says there, I will say, I, I will save, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. That's the covenant love and the covenant keeping that flows from the holy jealousy of God toward his people. And so we know he loves them. 
because he's coming back to them and he's renewing his vows with them. But we also know he loves them and we know God's plans won't fail because he's also going to restore them, right? And we see this in several pictures. We see the the picture of safety in verses 4 to 6. Did you see that there before? You ever wonder what a just society looks like? Looks like old men and old women leaning on their canes out in the streets in the city square, as we would say down south, talking trash, lying, (laughs) telling those tall stories about when they were young and, and sharing the day's news, doing that with no fear. And it's going to look like at the same time, little children, boys and girls, running around in the street playing. Not like they do in the streets in Southeast when they won't get out the road. You see the car coming in. And the road's like, would you, wait, where your mom? Would you move? Get out the street, you know? Not, not that. But this free, joyful, safe, unconcerned experience of play, forgetting themselves in play. Nobody worried about them. Being outside, being on the block, running around going where they wish. God says, listen, I'm going to come back to Jerusalem. And you have not known old people for a generation. And young people have been in danger because of the exile for 70 years. And I'm going to so restore community that everybody's going to stay outside and have a block party and hang freely without concern. And this must have been a marvelous thing to Israel. Because the Lord in verse 6 there, he, he says now, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days. He says, in other words, you're the ones who have come back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Some of you remember the former glory, and some of you have never seen the temple. And you remember we saw this a couple weeks ago when the foundation was laid. Some of the old saints were mourning with the blues real loud, and some of the young, some of the young Jewish persons were celebrating because the temple was laid, and you couldn't tell the difference, but some were crying and some were happy. And God says, now, when I do this, and I'm telling you I'm going to do this, For some of you, this kind of peace and justice and freedom is unimaginable. You think it's hard. But don't think that because you think it's hard, it's hard for me. Because you think it's marvelous don't mean I'm walking around thinking it's marvelous. And God is saying to his people, ain't nothing too hard for me. Yeah, you go ahead and marvel, but I'm not taking aback. You go ahead and wonder, but I got this. You go ahead and say, okay, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I've seen the end from the beginning. And I am coming to my people to restore them and to give them safety and to give them community that's going to be freedom and joy for all. And notice how he keeps on with the pictures. Look down to verses 10 to 15. He's promising them a day not only of safety and community, but a day of plenty and prosperity. The bad old days of unemployment. You see it there in verse 8? Or verse 10, excuse me. You, you, you know, a man couldn't get a wage. Even, even the animals couldn't get a wage, right? The bad old days of unemployment and violence where, where people were not safe with their neighbors, right? Notice, they're going to give way to the good new days of peace and fruit and ownership. 
And I love this text and this image for what it's given us because notice there, I think it's in verse 10, when God talks about no man feeling safe with his neighbor, he says, because, basically, I set neighbor against neighbor. I think what he's saying here is, listen, in those days, Israel was a hood, right? And all you need to do to turn a neighborhood into a hood is remove neighbor. And God says, my judgment was I plucked the neighbors out. I took away neighborliness from you, and you turned against each other, and nobody was safe. Now, when I restore you, I'm going to put the neighborly back in, and I'm going to put the plenty back in. Oh, in the old days, you wouldn't give each other a job. In the old days, you wouldn't share with one another. You took from each other. But in the new days, every man's going to have his vine and fig trees, he says earlier in the, in the book. And everybody's going to bear fruit. And that plenty is going to be one of the marks of my restoration. Look at verse 13. The people go from being a byword to a blessing. Did you see that? He says, you were byword among the nations. By the time he gets to the end of verse 13, you shall, you shall be a blessing. Verses 14 and 15 sum it up for us. For this says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. The same God who sent them into exile and judgment will be the God who gives them plenty and peace. And notice what he's doing in this text. From verse 9 down to verse 15, he's trying to strengthen them, to encourage them. You see it says there in verse 9, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. And again, the Lord encourages them in verse 13, right there at the end. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. See, Israel has, been, has the promise of restoration, but they're they are a long way off from it. Our sister Jadine's testimony actually occurs throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. As they ask, how long, O Lord? I see your people suffer. Where's, where's your deliverance? If we're paying attention, that's, I'm sure that's the, that's the testimony of many of us who are concerned for the, for, the, for the blessing and restoration and the fullness and the abundant life of God to be given to all of his creatures. There's a lot of work to be done. And this is the marvelous thing that we must not miss in this encouragement. The Lord says, fear not, strengthen your hands. He's in effect saying, yes, I'm going to bring the restoration but it's going to be through the work you do. You are the means that I will use to produce the society that I want. Among God's people, we put our shoulders to the plow, we put our hands to the task in faith, despite what we see, trusting what God has promised. This is how you keep parenting, isn't it? For the 1,500th time, you done told him, and they seem to take no benefit from it. And so for 1,501 times, you tell them. And you, you, you give them the preface. You say, I'm tired of telling you. But you tell them. Why? For the promise and the hope of what's to come despite what you see. This is, this is how you keep going to work. Whatever your work is. You, you can be a lawyer. Uh, you, you, can, you can be a, a sanitation worker. Uh, you can be a school teacher. 
How often do school teachers feel this weariness of day after day just trying to manage the classroom? Can I please just get you to sit down, right, and, and listen? And I got a lesson for you if you'll take it. You can't look at your students and, and, and have hope sometimes. You got to look beyond your students to the power and the goodness and the promises of God who, who tells us that he'll take our feeble words and our weak examples and he'll bear great fruit through them. And so we get this privilege of, of entering into the labor. This is what you have to do as a preacher. You know how many times I, I think somebody calls me or, or writes me. Now, please don't stop calling me or writing me. This is not the point of this. Somebody, somebody contact, it's not the point of this. Somebody, somebody contact me and ask a question. And I'd be like, that was a sermon three weeks ago. You know what I mean? I, I taught you that. And see, preachers, yeah, we, we are we feeble people. And, and we're, we're proud people, right? Because we think if we did one sermon on it, that fixed it in your life forever. Right? <laughs> That's crazy. It doesn't work in our, in our hearts that way. It doesn't work in your heart that way, right? But how does the preacher keep going? Well, he thinks like Paul thinks at the end of Colossians chapter 1, that he's laboring, struggling with all God's energy, which so powerfully works in him to present everyone mature in Christ. It's that hope of us being an unblemished bride that keeps the pastors, the elders, the leaders, the deacons going. Even as we see in all of our lives the imperfections, the struggles, the hurts, the concerns. And this is what God gives his people as encouragement. He takes them up on the mountaintop and he says, look at me. I love you. And look out and see the plans I have for you. Now keep working. I'm with you, and you are known by my name. So, there's a single application from this second point. Believe. Have faith. Continue on by trusting God's love and God's promise. That's what we're meant to see at the top of the mountain. God can be trusted whether we are in exile or whether we're in the promised land. Focus on him and not on man. Which brings us to our final point. God-centered worship leads to justice, joy, and missions. We're coming down the other side of the mountain now, and the path looks a whole lot like the path on the front side. But we're moving more swiftly. Our feet are more sure. We've had this mountaintop experience. And beloved, we are not meant to live always on the mountaintop. I learned this from Zach Eswine's wonderful book, Sensing Jesus, where he talks about the, the wise men uh, who are out in the field and the shepherds who are out in the fields and they have these, this extraordinary mountaintop experience where the angels appear to them, announce the birth of the Lord. Then they go see the very Savior of the world. And then the text says something rather ordinary. They return home. And Exxon, just sort of thinking about that, says, you know, I bet you for years they talked about that night they were out in the fields and they saw those angels and they went to see that baby. And for decades they would gather and tell that tale. And he says, the thing is this. They didn't stay at the manger. They didn't stay beside Christ. Who would love their wives? Who would raise their children? Who would tend their flock? There was everydayness to be lived. 
The purpose of the mountaintop experience is to keep us and propel us in the everyday experience. So we're coming down the backside of this mountain and we're coming back to the everydayness of being God's people. And God covers the ground that he covered before, but he's given us this view that hopefully moves us more quickly. Notice the first thing he says coming down that mountain. He still expects justice and mercy. So verses 16 and 17 basically repeat what we saw over in chapter 7. What, what he had chastised them for in chapter 7, he now renews his call for them in it here in chapter 8. Speak the truth to one another, verse 16 says. Excuse me. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and, and love no false oath. And then he tells us this, something about his own character. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the assumption is, if we love the Lord, we also hate what he hates. He hates injustice and untruthfulness and oppression. As his people, we cultivate a holy hatred for it too. And we commit ourselves to justice. Now, let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time when you did a systematic biblical study of justice and mercy as part of your Christian discipleship? Has there ever been a time when perhaps an older Christian, as part of teaching you what it means to follow Christ, led you through a biblical, systematic study of what God's Word says about justice and mercy? If you're like me, the answer is probably no. And because the answer is probably no, it means that there's a hole in our discipleship. If God loves justice and hates unrighteousness, then surely we should give ourselves to paying attention to what his word says about how we should love justice and hate unrighteousness. And we're not ready to obey everything Jesus has commanded us until we have studied something as major as Christian ethics in the world. Most of us come from the Christian tribes that put heavy emphasis on theology and almost no emphasis on ethics. And the consequence of that is most of us learn our ethics elsewhere. And so most of us are wobbly when it comes to, we got some things right, we got some things off. And because we're not taking those things necessarily to the Bible, other things become the judge of what we've got right and what we've got wrong. Beloved, I, I am firmly convinced that we're living in an age and a generation where Bible-believing Christians must commit themselves to what the Bible teaches about justice and mercy and social ethics. I'm also a firm believer that as Christians, the way we get at that is not by being partisans. We, we, we're not called to sign up for partisan politics. Now, I, I want to I make a confession here. Because in recent weeks or the day following the election, I wrote some things about the election. And for some of you, it was hurtful. And for some of you, it was a stumbling stone. And some of you thought I was attempting to be partisan. I'm not a partisan. In fact, I hate politics. 
I've spent my years in public policy. I have a sense of what government can and can't do, what policy can and can't do. I'm maybe not as negative on government as some people are. I'm not as optimistic on government as some people are. And I could care less, honestly, about the talking points of our two major parties. That's not what was up with me. And if I gave you that impression, it's my fault for writing in a way that communicated that. And for that, I'm sorry. But I am no partisan. And this church is no partisan church. And it's because we are God's people. We are God's holy people whom he loves. And he will be the one who teaches us by his word what justice looks like. And the Bible will be our plumb line. And it's by the Bible that we will learn, if we learn, we will learn to stand upright. Not leaning to the left, not leaning to the right, but letting the word be our guide. That's the, that's the elder's hope for us. We are, by God's grace, going to be a church where Republican and Democrat and Independent and Green Party and Socialist, and yes, Socialist too, who is a Christian, is home here because he or she is a Christian, because Christ is all, because we are united to him by faith and united to one another by that same faith, and he has called us to love, and he has said the mark of our love will be our loving each other across such divides. We will love each other with God's help. And we will be marked as Bible people with God's help. And if we are marked with Bible, as, as, as Bible people with God's help, now, beloved, you've got to know this. There are going to be places where the Bible affirms us and places where the Bible spanks us. And there are going to be places where the Bible helps us and places where the Bible challenges us. And one of the things that the Bible will do is begin to uproot by God's grace an easy partisanship that takes as proxy for what's right whatever our favorite politician or leader or political party holds. Enough of that among God's people. We press into the Bible. We press into the conversations the Bible calls us to have, and we let God and his spirit and his word settle it. And if in some things we can't be agreed, as Romans 14 and 15 says, in disputable matters, we accept one another. We accept one another, and we love one another. It's how we're going to be God's just people. So I do want to apologize to those that were made to stumble, were hurt, were offended in the careless ways that I have written or have spoken. And I do want to assure folks who maybe have gone away with a different impression of who I am as a leader and what this church stands for as a church, that we are not partisans. We are not enrolling people in political parties, but we are endeavoring to enroll people in God's word. If you want to live by God's word, whatever your party, you are in the right place and you are welcome. But as we've seen in Zechariah 7 and 8, God is serious about us living by his word, including being just and merciful people. Amen? So God's people will be just. That's part of the renewal. I spent more time on that than I meant to. Let me give us these other things real quickly. And God will renew our joy, our truth, and our peace in worship. You see that there in verses 18 and 20? He, he doesn't say stop fasting. He doesn't say stop feasting. No, he calls them back to it. Even adds more months to it, right? They came asking about the seventh month. He said fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth, 
all those months now, these are to be seasons of joy and gladness. You notice that? And cheerful feasts, therefore, love, truth, and peace. Now, notice the connection there. You're coming to have these feasts to be happy and glad. You're coming to worship for the joy of the Lord. But now that's rooted in peace and truth. So we're not talking about superficial, happy, clappy, you know, um, sort of escapism. No, we're talking about the joy that springs up out of knowing what's true and living for the peace that God gives us in Christ. And may God renew our worship. If we've been those who found ourselves in any measure self-centered, may he make us more God-centered, and may his truth spring up into joy as we worship him. And notice number three, finally, verses 21 to 23, the Lord will renew not just Israel, but the nations. You see that picture there, revival? The other cities, the other nations around Israel, they're going to begin to talk to each other and say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. I hear God lives in Jerusalem. Let's go seek the Lord. And, and, and the revival among this people now who have, who have seen God's love, who've had their community renewed, and who have been called now to a justice and, and a mercy and worship of the Lord with gladness, when people see that now, they're like, I want to go over there with that. And I love this picture. He says, 10 people from other nations will grab one Jew by the garment and say, take me with you, please. We hear God lives among you. Oh, and what a, what a testimony is that. Isn't this what God, God says to us in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about our worship services needing to be ordered and edifying? It says when people come in and see that and hear the truth of the gospel go forth, they say, surely God is among them. Oh, that's what, that's what happens when, when God reduces this way. That's what happens when he gets us off ourselves and gets us centered on him. And in our being centered on him, we obey what he calls us to in things like true worship and justice and mercy and kindness and humility. And when we worship him with gladness and that gladness goes up and goes out, people go, they are different. And God begins to bring the nations to himself. So we have in these last verses a picture of Christian evangelism and Christian missions, the establishment and the spread of the gospel in the church to all nations. And this is why our mission statement is about being a people who are concerned with reaching the four corners of the block all the way to the four corners of the globe. Because this one Jew who's grabbed onto by the hem, ultimately is Jesus Christ our Savior. He is the one who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And he has come into the world, not just for Israel, as you know, but he's come into the world for people from every tribe and every language and every group. And he has given himself for people who come from every background so that the offer of the gospel is free to all. Christ comes and says, would you live? Would you be forgiven? Would you know God and be reconciled to him? Would you have a perfect righteousness in his presence, which does not depend upon you, but that I will give you? Would you be adopted into his family and sit at his table, as we sang a moment ago in Jesus, thank you? Would you have heaven be your eternal home? Would you know the full assurance of God's plan and God's will for your life, which is both for now and for eternity? If you would be forgiven, if you would be loved, if you would have joy inexpressible and full of glory, come follow me, Jesus says. Turn from your sins and trust in me. I've done everything you need in order to know God and live with him. 
I came into the world and I took on me your humanity. And I lived a life that you could not live. I obeyed God perfectly when you could not. And because you could not, you deserved death. But rather than God judge you, he judged me. I died for you. I gave myself for you on Calvary's cross. And when the anger of God was poured out on me in judgment on Calvary's cross, I was taking your place. And three days later, I rose from the grave to prove that, yes, I'm the Son of God, but also to prove that my sacrifice was all God required for you. If you would live, if you would know God's love, if you would know joy forever, turn from your sins and believe in me, Jesus says. And beloved, I don't care where you're from or who you are. That offer goes out to everyone here. If you would repent and trust in Jesus alone, he will save you and make you his own. If you want to know more about that, talk with us before you leave. That's why we exist. That's the one thing we want you to know is how to live forever in God's love through faith in Jesus. That's the sermon. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise and thanks for this day and for this text, how it searches us, how it calls us higher, how it comforts us, Lord, we, we have been people who have looked into your word and saw our reflection and turned away and forgot what we saw. Oh, Lord, help us not to be those people. Help us to look into your word, to see you, to see ourselves reflected in the light of your glory, to see the truth and know the truth, to believe the truth, and then go away remembering and living the truth. Help us, Lord. You have good plans for us. Perfect plans, in fact. And you will bring them to pass. You will carry on your work in us until you complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And so, looking forward to the completion of that work, help us on this day to be strong and not fear, to lean into your word, to trust you and to follow you and to do your bidding. Help us to do so more and more as the day approaches and help us to encourage each other, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And make us that community, O oh Lord, so joyful and so truthful, so merciful and so just, that when people see us, they grab us by the hand and say, take us with you to God. Take us with you to Christ. And Lord, let your revival come here in the city and on all nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.